Hello. In this episode of Airs for Architecture, the writer Rob Fien speaks about London of the Future, an anthology of essays with pictures produced by the London Society and published by Merrill, by some of the capital's leading visionaries from a wide array of disciplines who give voice to imaginaries of the possibly imminent. Rob is director of the London Society and chair of the Museum of Architecture. A is for Architecture, a podcast about architecture, buildings, urban culture and space. Hello and welcome to another episode of Airs for Architecture. I'm talking today to Rob Fien. Rob, would you introduce yourself? Thanks very much. Um, yes, my name is Rob Fien. I'm the director of the London Society. <laughs> and that's it. Um, that's a fantastically uh, uh, tight I think there's more to you than this, but um, yeah, how do you get to be the head of the London Society and what is, I suppose, the London Society? I suppose I've been working in the architectural sector for uh-huh. a couple of decades, um, mostly working within book publishing, PR, communication and event organising, which is great because it gives you a fantastic overview Uh, of the whole uh, industry, which a lot of people aren't always afforded when they're working on their projects within their sector, which is great. And I think um, I started to give a lot of my time up for uh, volunteer work. So I'm I'm also the chair of the Museum of Architecture, uh, which is a small charity that runs events like the Gingerbread City. Um, And I was a, a committee member of the London Society. And when this job uh, came up, uh, I thought it'd be great to have a more uh, direct role in the running of the society, which is fantastic. So I'm quite new in post, but while as a committee member, um, I was working on uh, London in the Future, which is the book that we've just produced. The society itself was set up in 1912 by various luminaries of the time, uh, like uh, Aston Webb and Edwin Lutchins um, and, and lots of their mates and they wanted to get together and find ways to uh, improve the city that they love so much so they were very much and they were very much interested in engaging uh, with the public because they felt that people needed to understand how everything worked and so they would run competitions to design new bridges and they would run campaigns to build awareness about um uh, you know, ways to better plan London. And, you know, I think this was very much at the time where there was a big, you know, civic revolution going on um, with the planning of London rather than letting, with the sort of, rather than the sort of Victorian laissez-faire attitude of people doing bits and pieces here and there. So it was a really exciting time for them. And we've trying to continue that into the 21st century, really. So we run lots of events, tours, talks, um, campaigns, and generally just trying to become that bridge between the Russian and the public. Oh, that's interesting. That's an interesting point. Maybe we can come back to that, this idea of being a bridge. But you you trained in architecture or t- trained in literature or so, an area like that? So by training, I guess I, I could be described as an art historian. Okay. But uh, during my degree, I got much more interested in architecture than art. Um, and which led me down some very strange routes in terms of uh, dissertations and coursework. Mm-hmm. So the London Society gets founded just before the First World War. And then obviously everything changes because loads of people get killed 
for no good reason. And then you get this London of the future. So we're talking about your book, which you published, well, the London Society's book, London of the Future, which was published this year um, by Merrill. And it's a gorgeous book, hardback, and what do they describe it? Lavishly illustrated, I think is the, uh, that's the go-to adjective for, Ill any illustration has to be either lavish or black and white, um, but it's lavishly illustrated. And um, and it's a hundred years directly after the publication of the previous London of the Future, which, um, so I thought perhaps before we talk about your book, perhaps it would be good to talk about its, its forebear, its antecedent, um, the, um, the original London of the future, um, because it's the starting point, I suppose, it's the point at which your writers in this uh, anthology bounce off. Is that right? Or in, in a way, yes. I mean, so we're a little bit, due to COVID and various other reasons, we're a little bit behind schedule. So our new book comes out 102 years Ooh. after the original. How, how unfortunate. Which was uh, annoying, but I guess once we realised that we weren't going to make our self-imposed deadline, it did free us up to spend a bit more time on the planning of it. Yeah. Um, but no, we, we took great inspiration from the original book because essentially the writers were given free reign pretty much to come up with what they whatever they wanted to suggest in terms of improvements. And also it was very eclectic. And I think that's really important that they weren't trying to create a sort of unified narrative. They were sort of saying, you know, here's 15 to 18 ideas of how to improve London and they could all be taken individually. And, you know, and so you could, rather than saying to any government, you have to do all of these things. They were sort of saying, here are informed people suggesting loads of different ideas, any one of which, if you were to take them up, would be great for, the, for London. And so I think that's what we we didn't give our um, authors for the new book too much of a brief. We they were sort of selected for their areas of uh, expertise, but you know they were, could take it off in any direction that they wanted to, and they they didn't know what anyone else was writing. We some of them were told of a few of the other contributors, but really they did it in isolation. Excellent, and you found that 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 there was still. A, I was reading around the London of the future before. I just uh, explain. I was reading around the London, the, the the first London of the future, and there was a couple of academic papers that I came across, which talked about it. One of them, particularly good one, I thought, written in twenty twelve, was talking about that London of the future being really a programmatic for for modernity, for this idea of London as a as a modern city, but a, a city that in, was in need of modernization, that needed to, to become um, coherent, uh, urbanistically, architecturally. It needed to become more like the center of a proper empire, which, you know, you'd have thought, um, yeah, sort of like given London, that seems reasonable, and so on and so forth. So it was this, it, it had a kind of coherent narrative thread running through it about modernity. Um, but I was reading your um, recent one, the London of the Future 2023, and um, I was trying to work out what is the coherent thread here? And is it, was it something that you kind of, when you approached these authors, you were like, maybe think about this, maybe like this is, 
this is the idea, this is the direction, or did you select your authors with a kind of idea about a certain dynamic or trajectory? I I think that the first book was interesting because the London Society was also simultaneously very concerned with keeping the best of the past. Mm. So they, and they did for many years, you know, in the latter half of the 20th century, I think they had a real reputation as more of a sort of 20th century society. This idea they were trying to just conserve things, which was all were completely against their founding principles. As you say, they were keen on a, on a modern London, but they were also desperately keen to make sure that we didn't lose that sense of our own history and identity. So they were tr- always trying to sort of marry those two things. And mm-hmm. Aston Webb uh, gave an after-dinner speech um, a few years after the first book came out, where he talks about he talks about a dream that he had. It ob- uh, obviously, it's it's, it's very um, well suited for his speech. He talks about a dream where he sort of flies around London a hundred years later. Um, well, actually, it was in the year uh, twenty, yeah, twenty fourteen. He flies around London. And the city is incredibly clean and he spots all his favourite landmarks. And then he sees some newer buildings, which are quite, you know, intriguing to him. But the idea is, yeah, gone is the sort of soot and the dirt and the and the dust and the poverty and the inequality. So I, I definitely think they, they had that vision of a sort of cleaner, safer, better, well-planned London. Mm. Um, I would say for the for our book, we, you know, we selected progressive writers, if I'm honest, um, you know, and we, as, as you'll, as you'll see, we did target people that do know about conservation, uh, as well as targeting people who know about um, housing and development and kind of climate friendly strategies. So I think we knew that they would all, they would all be broadly in favour of, um, a, of a, of a sort of sensible progressive way forward um however some of them did come back to me and said does this have to be a utopian or a dystopian vision and i said let's it's, it's up to you and so some of them are not very happy endings for london and they they act more as a warning i think for what what will happen if we continue down you know some of the current paths that we're on which i think is really interesting because if you dress, I believe that if you dress up everything as, you know, um, a sort of happy, clappy, this is how we're going to make uh, London brilliant. I think you lose some of that urgency. Yeah. It's, <clears throat> I suppose, the, for me, a, a critical question. I, I live outside London, but I rarely go in anymore. Um, is, is that London isn't really one thing. It's very difficult to define it. So I asked a colleague of mine who lives in London, he travels down to teach where I teach. I said, uh, I said to him, what will, this was just this morning. I said, what will he, what will the, what is the future of London? And he looked at me and he said, well, what is London? And I thought this is an important question. Like how are we defining London in London of the future? Are we including the home counties? Are we sticking within the M25? Are we talking about that little central bit where combination of city workers, tourists, and uh, GPs slash architects live? Or are we talking about, and also obviously their service staff, or are we talking about the whole of this 
what is it, seven to nine million strong city? I think we are talking, we, we managed to talk in the book in terms of the sort of broader geographical reach and some hyper-localism. Mm-hmm. So we are talk, we are talking, so I think London is both, isn't it? It's both your immediate area and then it's also this much broader, sometimes sprawling mass. So at least two of the authors are very keen on local food production yeah. and are convinced that we will have to um, harness the any arable land Mm-hmm. outside of the the confines of of the capital and that the, the idea that we have all this farmland which would have once fed london and and now it doesn't um so there's definitely there's definitely talk about the very edges of london and how it interacts um with its with its surrounding areas um there's also obviously an entire chapter dedicated to just the city of london mm-hmm. and i do think you know, historically and financially, it is the sort of beating heart of the capital. Mm-hmm. And so it seemed crazy to us that we wouldn't explore that. And what's uh, interesting about um, that chapter is that the author gives us three potential kind of... This is uh, And this is uh, Kat Hanna. Kat Hanna focuses on the City of London and she gives us okay. three sort of hypothetical scenarios of what could happen to the city were it to drop its sort of financial centre status, yeah. what, what would it become? And I think that's a really interesting, although they're kind of, they're not meant, they are slightly tongue in cheek. Uh, I think what she's suggesting is that nothing is set in stone and that, you know, London could be anything while, could become anything while remaining London, if that makes sense. Mm-hmm. And then the other uh, sort of more expansive side of things which I should mention is Tony Travers who talks about this sort of London as this sort of encroaching uh monster onto the southeast yeah this idea that um London could grow and could expand and could hoover up more areas but not you know really not necessarily not necessarily through um you know lines drawn on map but through economic partnerships and you know and trade and investment yeah it is a, it's an interesting it's an interesting issue isn't it this idea of london eating it up i think that's your phrase not mine and you've mentioned the ideas of sustainability i mean speaking to some people who live in southwest london they don't they tall and you know they live in i don't know dulwich or somewhere out there to all intents and purposes they don't really live in london at all they never go into london to the core they live in a bit of london it's punishingly expensive for everybody due to processes of gentrification and hypergentrification. It doesn't really have a future, does it? I mean, like, who's going to live? Who's going to live there when you're paying seventeen and 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 nothing and nothing being done is addressing that? I mean, so we, you've mentioned conservation as well. I mean. There's no aspect since London's got its own mayor under Ken Livingstone and then under Boris and now under Sadiq Khan. None of them have sought to conserve anything. I mean, look at what they're doing to Battersea or Nine Elms. Look at what they've done to the City of London. Look at what they're doing to London Bridge. Look at what they're, you know, Canary Wharf is still going strong. But, you know, it's Croydon, which isn't even London, but sort of is London, now looks like Canary Wharf did. You know, so like what I don't really understand this notion of. 
I suppose some of the progressive agendas that are expressed within the book don't really seem to meet with the reality as we perceive it from the outside, which is a city that's completely out of control and has, it's sort of politically em lacking in empathy, it doesn't seem to be addressing distinct inequalities, doesn't seem to be addressing um, anything at a kind of structural level. So like, how does it, yeah, so I'm kind of kind, kind of confused a little bit, I suppose, um, as, a, as an outsider. Like, what is this thing that you're trying to protect? Like, should it be? Can it be? It's not so much can it be, but should it be even protected? Should it be preserved for the future? But I do think that um, Anna Minton's essay goes some way to to talk about what you're what you're describing. She um, she does see a London out of control and and run by capital more than anything else, mm -hmm. and she doesn't she doesn't really see a solution. You know, unless there's going to be kind of wholesale political change and also a big shift in um, public opinion. On, mm. on on how they interact with um, the built environment and sort of, you know, um, uh, not putting up with, as you say, that that systemic inequality. Yeah, I think I think also. But I think also this idea that. Um, that London sort of, I guess we believe that London does have some good points uh, and that maybe what I think is really interesting is that each chapter, no matter who has written it, they have to talk about the past mm -hmm. to then talk about the future. So we never told everyone that. We never said you you have to do, do a historical analysis before you get started. Mm -hmm. But I, I think they all felt it was incumbent to show to the reader that they understand the context with which they're describing. Mm -hmm. So um, uh, I think what that shows is that we can take the best of London's past and we can transpose it to the future. Mm. And I think what's great about Mark Brearley's essay on mm -hmm. the high streets is that, you know, he says these local economies are what made London great. Mm -hmm. It's what it's what meant that people could live and work within their local area. And you're right, they didn't have to go into the core because they had everything they needed within their, within their area. Mm -hmm. And so this idea of actually could we have a broader vision to support that and create an entire entire city of high streets mm. um, where there is some local manufacturing where there is retail where there is community amenities um I, I think he totally gets that so i think you're right in the sense that potentially you could see london as totally out of control um but also it has the seeds within it for its own survival yeah and i guess we're maybe maybe we should acknowledge that we're at a tipping point yeah. where if we undermine any more of, of those things that made London so good, we may never get them back. Yeah, for sure. Yeah, for sure. I, I, I thought maybe we could talk about some of the themes. I mean, I picked out in, in my own reading of it, I picked out some themes. I mean, big, broad themes. You've already touched on the issue around food, which I think is really fascinating. One. And I recorded a podcast a short while back about what are called sepals, uh, um, continuous productive urban landscapes. And there was a proposal by some academics from Brighton for generating these great seas of productive landscapes through London. And, and, and it's a kind of exercise in imagination. 
which which I think fits very well with your book, by the way, uh, which is um, like the first one described as um, an exercise in the contemporary urban imagination. I think that goes well with your book as well. It's a um, it's a speculation rooted, as you said, in history and, and rooted in the processes that generate London. But I thought perhaps we could talk about this issue around democracy, which I think is possibly if London falls, and it sounds like a Gerard Butler, dreadful Gerard Butler film, it will be because of a lack of democracy precipitating a level of civil unrest, which makes it unsustainable. How does the, how does your author, how does uh, Sarah Ichioka talk about this? What are the kind of, what are the general ideas? Because Indy Johar in his art article is, is ultimately talking about democracy as well. And, and Carolyn Steele in the one on, uh, on food is ultimately talking about it as well. What does this look like? What does a, what does a democratic London of the future look like? Well, I think, and also Baroness Lawrence is yeah. very, you know, she mixes up justice and, um, uh, and governance. Um, and I think, I think that they're all mainly calling for greater participation. And that does seem to be quite decentralised mm. in the sense that it seems to be there is, I, I, I mean, I would agree with this, that there seems to be more happening at a local level in London that is quite, uh, not revolutionary, but certainly taking steps in the right direction in certain boroughs. Um, and I think the average person does feel more empowered to engage with that. I think mm -hmm. as soon as you start getting to citywide politics, uh, people switch off. Mm -hmm. I think when you get to national politics, they sort of worse than switch off. They sort of get angry, but uh, sort of with no direction to point that to point that towards. Um, so I do think that. Um, the hyperlocal is potentially the way out for London mm. because that, you know, this, I think Johar talks about, you know, these sort of citizens, um, citizens, uh, I, I can't remember what he calls them, but, you know, sort of um, gatherings and, and, mm -hmm. and formal structures um, and then them feeding back to people um, to hopefully implement their ideas and plans. Mm. And I think those partnerships between local governance and people could make a huge difference because people people do often know what they need to support their own communities uh, and i think you're right i don't think they would opt for the out of control um gentrification and you know and and hyper regeneration that they they they're not always keen on that and you do see you do see instances where projects are rejected um by local councils because they're even they're shocked, even through even by going through a pre pre-planning application process, no one seems to be aware of quite what everyone was suggesting. Mm. And so um, you've got that fantastic example in the news at the moment of Greenwich Council trying to get that abominable building knocked down so that they build the abominable building that they said they were going to build rather than the really bad one that they did build. And I have to say, I mean, I'm I'm really pleased that Greenwich Council is taking a stand. Mm -hmm. on that issue i think the demolition itself seems extreme and slightly wasteful but you know it is a as you say it is an abomination um but there there are other questions that people are you know people are raising where they say one of the one of the um discrepancies 
from the planning was that there was supposed to be an underground car park freeing mm -hmm. up the ground level for a playground. But they clearly never dug that underground car park and the initial works. So who is, where, what, what is the oversight from the local authority there? And I'm sure the developer is going to take this to the courts. They're not, there's no way they're just going to demolish a building straight away. You know, so I think you have to ask yourself, you know, I think local government does have to take some responsibility in these things. Mm. You know, 26 deviations from the uh, from the planning application and um, and and nobody thought, you know, people just they just waited until the whole thing was built and fully occupied before mm. saying, oh, we actually, we're not that happy. But I mean, it just it does just come across as like a Wild West situation. I was talking to an architect a few years ago about what it was like in the London Docklands during a period of deregulation there when they got Canary Wharf and and that vast area of uh, across the east of London, north and south of the River Dun. And he said it was just like no one was watching. Like you just went out there, you drank a lot and you had meetings with people and they would be like, build something on that. And that was basically a brief. Um, and I think that that must be still part of the culture where they go, oh, you said you're going to build that. And then they just don't turn up till practical completion. And it's kind of mad. And and obviously, the, the, the more terrifying London example is Grenfell, where there was, again, quite clearly a total lack of accountability at that kind of domestic level of 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 the production of the built environment. And I, and I think, again, to talk back to our point about people understanding their local areas or even in the case in the case of Grenfell their own building what was heartbreaking was that the residents group did write to the council on multiple times outlining that their building was a death trap so they knew the dangers of their own structure can you imagine and yet and yet and yet no one decided to take any action on that and I just I think so I think I think it, it you know what we can take from Grenfell is that we can't rely on we can't rely on you know uh, the governing bodies to always be on the case. Yeah. So it comes back to your point about this kind of hyper localized and 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 district based um, idea, which is obviously the feedback loops between democratically elected bodies like local you know borough councils and and, and the people that aren't working. So something new needs to be done. And it's kind of an exciting idea that London, for all its scale, is about the right kind of scale to be able to try and explore this. Because smaller than that, you're already kind of represented through parish councils and potentially through, you know, PTAs in schools. There is a kind of um, a quite reciprocal, dynamic and agile democratic feedback loop but in the city you've got the gla you've got your borough councils and then i guess if they don't pick it up by like who's paying attention as as you found yeah and i i think that um london has always historically been a collection of villages mm. as you say sort of tied together tied together by these loose boundaries i mean where i'm i now live in uh, the northeast of london uh, but where I am was Essex until the 1960s. So, you know, it's just funny how so the, the line changes, the postcode alters, but the people didn't change overnight. Um, you know, the, uh, the the landscape certainly hasn't. There's lots of, you know, Epping Forest is, is protected mm. and you can't build upon it. 
So it is just interesting, as you said, about this idea of what is what actually constitutes London. So um, this is a really interesting point. So why do you think living all that way, like, what is it? What is Londonness? I, it sounds like a stupid question, but how can somebody who lives in the suburbs, I have family that live down in kind of, what do they call it? South Norwood, because they don't want to say call it penge, because penge sounds like something you do to yourself when you overstretch. Um, like, what is it to be? But they call themselves London. They see themselves as being part of this thing that is London. And obviously, it's like an actual geographical line. You can look at it on a map. Do I live within it or do I live without it? Um, but there's a sensibility to being a Londoner, isn't there? There's a kind of a mental architecture that comes with the the name. Like, I am a Londoner. I mean, what what does that even, what does that mean for you, Rob? I mean, I'm, um, I like to draw back on, uh, uh, bizarrely, on some of the um, Terry Pratchett novels I read when I was a kid. And he invented this city, Ankh-Morpork, which was clearly, um, I thought, an analogy for London. And what what was great about his city was that it was very syncretic, that basically it would always... The, the point was it was the city was never invaded because they would always open their doors to the invaders and say, well, we've just come on in and just become part of us. And I do think there's an element of that in London. Mm. That I'm I was born and bred uh in the in this city, but I have met many other people who've only been here for a couple of years. And I feel that we're kind of equally Londoners. I don't feel that I have a sort of um an ownership to London. And I think it, I think it does something to you when you're in the confines. I do think it helps when you do move around a bit. And so I have to kind of, I do sometimes take my friends to key, maybe that's the part of the London society in me. But I do take my friends to, you know, sites of interest, which they might not know about. And I do make them sometimes journey into the dreaded centre. But I, I think... I think you you do become aware of the differences and the similarities as you move around mm-hmm. as you move around the city. And there, you know, I live in the northeast. I I grew up in Putney in the southwest, and there are definitely there's there's so many things that I feel are similar. Actually, um, even though they you know I'm now diametrically opposed across across the the geography. Um, so yeah, I think there, I think there is some sense of civic pride, although obviously loads of people would might debate that with me, uh, mm. and I'd be happy to have that debate. Whereas maybe some people feel that being in London is doing them a disservice. But I guess then you would have to ask yourself if you've stopped loving London, maybe what is the point of living here? Because as you said, everything is more expensive: mm-hmm. goods, services, rent. You know, so I think you you have to see some benefit, and yeah. maybe that's proximity to work, or maybe it's maybe it's your surrounding community. There's lots of people in my local area now who were born and raised here, so they've got all their parents and grandparents around them. I uh, I occasionally go to the American Embassy, so there's the only two places I ever go in in, in London as. Uh... Uh, the American Embassy, which used to be really cool, Eero Saarinen building in the West End. And now it's a massive castle in the centre of London with a moat and men with machine guns. And all of the descriptions in the book are 
dependent upon a reality which maybe isn't true, that London isn't the master of its own fate. And all of the decisions about its democratic form, its urban development, its economic use, even its cultural production are actually dependent upon the occupying force, which is America. I mean, literally they've built a castle with a moat, um, depending on what they want. So London is, as you've pointed out at the beginning, like London is the city. And it has this big donut of service around it. And then the city is America. It's capitalism. It's neoliberal capitalism. It's globalization. It's world city things. It's all of this. So all of these visions are very, very poetic and they're very creative. But isn't it possibly the case that, in fact, just as London used to be the centre of the British Empire, which is why it's so rich, because it went around the world nicking people's money. Now it's the centre of the second centre to the American Empire, which, you know, we're, our, we're their Western, Western European outpost. So I just wonder whether, like, I, I wonder whether London actually has the agency that people like to think it has, or whether it's rather, yeah, an outpost now. I think, interestingly, as as the UK diminishes internationally, I do feel that London, there is a glimmer of hope that London is still considered, you know, a global player in terms of the great cities of the world. Mm -hmm. And I do think it's wonderful that city leaders can meet and talk about their dreams and hopes and aspirations and also compete with one another. Mm -hmm. And I think that, Paris is making these fantastic moves in terms of, um, you know, pedestrianisation and regreening the city and making more of their river. And I, I, I do feel that when things like that happen, I feel that London sort of feels the need to, you know, to speed up its own initiatives mm. and to take part in this sort of great race of the of the cities of the world. Um, so I do, I do think there's some uh, agency there. I think. I love the fact that we are we are definitely making small steps towards a sort of pedestrianised Oxford Street. I think that's I think that's going to become you know um, much higher on the agenda in the coming. I'd say in the next five years, mm -hmm. we'll we'll have a real you know if not an implemented plan, certainly you know a start. And you know uh, Westminster Council has already sort of started to say like those horrible sweet shops or those empty retail outlets are going to be given over for free to smaller independent businesses to have for six months to to build up their own business um and you know i think i think we will start to see a more livable more walkable center which is less mm -hmm. car dominated and i know that that process is going to be uncomfortable and sticky but i think it wouldn't be possible without some civic vision for London and I think what I guess I, I think what businesses have realized and they're pushing they're pushing back to uh to local government is to say that we need the center to be attractive we we need people to as you were saying to want to come in mm -hmm. and experience the best of London and so whether that's improved cultural institutions you know whether that's more more pleasant um, areas to walk and rest in 
I mean, I think King's Cross Granary Square is really interesting model because it's all very developer-led, um, you know, which, as we know, doesn't always generate the best um, urban examples. But they've got this amazing square, which is just a draw because it's a square with some fountains and there's places for people to sit and there's a canal with some steps. Mm-hmm. And it, it, it kind of feels like, you, you, you know, it really is a case of sort of build it and they will come. Mm-hmm. So I think you are seeing these um, these improvements coming. It's just uh, sometimes it's happening slowly and piecemeal. I suppose that comes back to the differential between the differences between the um, the initial um, London of the future um, and and the the recent uh, the, and your one. Let's call it that for shorthand. Where you have obviously that 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 one is to do with modernization. Modernization is a very comprehensive idea. It's a very colonialist idea to all intents and purposes. I know people would contest that, but I think the two things um, seem to walk in lockstep fairly fairly evidently. Where there's this idea that London, for example, London needs to be made more coherent as a city. This is a kind of top-down application of a design logic, a spatial logic, an urban logic uh, to 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 a messy, laissez-faire, capitalist city. Now we've got this idea in your book, and and the the whole character of the book is this kind of polyphony of different um, uh, arguments and voices. Is something to do with plurality? pluralism london of the future is a london of plurality um which means that well for me it felt like some of these bigger visions particularly around ecology and the environment which are kind of impositional in their demands really it's a real struggle between these two things like how does london retain its granular how does it pursue a granular localized democratic um urban development strategy, for example, and at the same time enact wide-ranging eco-strategies that are going to ameliorate for climate change. Like it's a real it's a real it's a real problem at the scale of London because you're dealing with like either either you believe in radical democracy and the chance that some community in Brixton says, actually we just want loads of cars and we want three petrol stations and a dual carriageway. Or you've got someone telling you how to, I don't know, urban green the uh, back lanes. Yeah, I I think there's a big difference, which I should have mentioned earlier, about the two books. And the first book is, is does propose large capital projects, mm. like, you know, building airports in parks. Yeah, that was the and, best. That's the best idea I've yet heard. Yeah. In, in central London, in Hyde Park? Yeah. Yeah. And just building them on top of them and sort of having the park underneath, which is quite <laughs> wild. Um, but, you know, they they do believe in these huge sort of capital projects and ideas and obviously therefore investment. Mm. I think what's interesting is, with again, without any briefing, all of our um, uh, authors have pretty much said we need to take what we've got and find ways to adapt it. So whether that is... You know, Sarah saying, "Come on, we can. We 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 could easily um, plant more trees, use uh, natural devices for water runoff, 
you know, we can, you know, so we can absorb carbon while providing shade, while also dealing with, you know, mitigating flooding. So she, she's, she's clearly talking about that, but she's talking about it within the existing fabric. She's not saying, she, at no point does she say, tear down the House of Parliament and plant a forest, mm. which is kind of maybe what London in the future, you know, 1.0 would have suggested. Um, you know, and also at sort of more micro scale, people talking about retrofitting existing housing so that it's more energy efficient mm-hmm. and more capable to deal with the climate crisis. So that's building per building. And I think all of this comes back to the society's vision of engaging better with people. So as you say, what's to stop the people of Brixton building five petrol stations and a multi-lane highway? I, th- I think what's to stop them is full, proper discussion, public engagement, bringing in many voices who, and then talking about the benefits of different ideas and proposals. And often when you do talk to people and you say, well, would you like a car park or a park? I think a lot of them do opt for the park option. Um, and that, you know, I think, I think what we're seeing with motorists at the moment is we're seeing some very loud and impassioned voices, but I'm not, I don't think they necessarily speak for the majority. I think mm-hmm. it's a, a group of people who believe very strongly in their way of life, which is fine. Um, uh, and then I th- guess I would also argue that if the people in, in this Brixton neighbourhood wanted to, to, to build five petrol stations, you know, maybe at some point, that's the democratic decision that, that, that happens. So I think, um, I, I think what we're talking about is simultaneously someone taking charge of larger, larger issues while trying to implement them um, with bar- local buy-in. And I think you can only do that by talking about it. And I think that's why we wanted to do, revisit the book hmm. because, you know, it has, uh, it has opened up a lot of doors to discussion. And I think, the original book, I think it was shown to MPs and various people of note. You know, I think Aston Webb was walking around waving it in front of people's noses saying, this is how to build a better London. Um, Have you been doing so as well? Well, the London Society runs an all-party parliamentary group on the built environment. So we will be, we we haven't sort of taken them to task on this yet because in the previous two years, we were doing a project on the suburbs. But I think I think this is going to be our, our next big issue. So we will use any, we're a small charity, but we'll yeah. use any, any clout or influence we can to try and impress this upon people. A last question. The Houses of Parliament's rebuild cost is now projected to reach £22 billion, which is not even going to scratch the surface. Um, which included, the first budget, by the way, included, which was only five and a half billion, included 100 million pounds for wire. I would have done the wiring for cheaper than that on my own and probably quicker anyway. And I don't even know how to do wiring. It doesn't seem sustainable. That That is not sustainable. That's an absurdity. Wouldn't it be better? So two questions, wouldn't it be better to build a new one somewhere else? And does London, retain its identity without government? Is London the centre of government? If we move the centre of government to, say, Birmingham, which would make a lot of sense, 
there's plenty of examples in 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 um, in uh, city, Ameri- cities like America where you have an administrative center, but you have cultural centers that are bigger and more dynamic, like New York and Los Angeles versus Washington D.C. Could we still have London as is without the Houses of Parliament and Whitehall? I I think uh, London is more than than government, and I think. You know, if you if you imagine the tourists coming to London, they love the look of the Houses of Parliament, but they probably don't care what actually happened, the processes that go on inside very much. Um, and as you say, I've been to some fantastic cities which have some fantastic civic buildings, but they aren't they aren't key to the running of that country. So I think um, I think London is is more than it's it's governing role um and i think also giving uh giving um parliament to another city could be really good for the uk and could free up london to do more of the things it wants to do focused on its on itself and not not worrying about its um necessarily about its relationship with controlling the whole country so i um i'm not worried about that at all one of the ideas posited in uh London of the future. Our book is that um, the House of Parliament is sold to an Asian um, Asian hotel uh, hotelier, um, and and just retrofitted with lots of rooms for luxury visitors to the capital. And I think she proposes moving Parliament to the Bloomberg Building. So I so I think I think there's two answers to your question. I think one we could move Parliament to Birmingham and to make to make a more equitable country. Or I think we could retrofit another building in that ex- it already exists in London for Parliament, and I do think the costs for the existing building are astronomical. And I'm also aware that the reason the plans for improving the building are d- delayed is that incoming MPs want to have their few years in the in the actual House of Parliament, so they're all doing it for very selfish reasons. Um, M- MPs being selfish, who would have? Yes. Yeah. <laughs> well thank you very much it's a wonderful book and really really interesting um i guess i oh i guess there is one other question what does london teach us how can we utilize how can we leverage london so how does the work of the london society in this london of the future how can we utilize this for for, for generating new thinking around our capital but also just world cities in general like is london a model that we can cop on, copy and is this book london of the future kind of does it express a blueprint for ways of thinking about cities of the future? I think the book expresses it. I think I think London's past, um, you know, as I said, has some great has some great nuggets for a sort of polycentric city and mm-hmm. the way that a well connected city which has multiple centres. Mm-hmm. I think is a great is a great international model rather than the sort of Parisian kind of rings of uh, inequality uh yeah. i would i would uh argue that yes there are so if, uh, chapters like mark stevenson's london's new nickname mm-hmm. i think uh show a really interesting way that a city could could lead the world i just think i think we've got a bit of a longer way to go to get there yes thank you very much um rob that was really wonderful Thank you. No, thank you for having me.
So that's London. So good they named it once. Thanks to Rob for the conversation and to Merrill and the London Society for the book. Links to it and to Rob's various online professional persona are in the podcast description. Thanks for listening. <laughs>